Welcome to River Life Podcasts. We're a church family embracing the Father's presence, releasing empowered people to declare and demonstrate Christ's kingdom. We trust that God would use what you hear today to bless and grow you so that you would be a blessing to those around you. For more information about River Life Baptist Church, go to riverlifechurch.org.au or find us on social media. Wow, I was talking to a parent recently and this parent has uh, children in high school and as I was talking to this particular parent, they were mentioning that, their, uh, that one of their children was undergoing some bullying uh, at their high school and, uh, and the kid just didn't quite know how to, to, to manage it and, uh, and it was getting pretty nasty to the point where the kid was feeling you know, really quite down about it all and, and the parent was trying to help them manage the situation, put into place some things that would assist them in, in knowing what to do in the playground, when it was happening, uh, how to stand up for themselves, how to speak in the various moments, when not to say anything, all of this sort of stuff, yeah? And this young child was brave enough to be able to go to their, their head of their year level and say something about it. I just think, like you say, why is that brave? That's brave because in a culture, in, in, in schools, if you're the one that snitches, if you're the one that dobs out on somebody else, the repercussions can be really nasty to you as well, right? That can be a nasty thing. And, and, and so uh, this, this child was brave enough to be able to come and actually say something to this head of year level. And the head of year level said this and said to this young person, and the parent was quite surprised by it, as was I when I heard it. And, and the, the head of year level said, you know what, I am so grateful that you came and said something because we cannot stand for this. This cannot be in you incredibly brave. And, and the child said, yeah, but I, I'm also not that brave that I wanna go back out there and, and, and deal with the ramifications of it. And he said, no, no, don't. this isn't my first rodeo. It's okay. I'm just gonna tell a few white lies about the situation And they never know that it was you who came and said something, but those bullies are going to know that I know, and it's going to stop. Not something I think we'd say is quite all right, is it? You know, like, it kind of feels like, oh, good, you know, the greater good happened, right? The the bullying stopped, which it, it, it did. This parent was able to say that through the child, it has stopped, but... I don't know that we would tell a lie for the greater good. I, I just don't know if that fitted right when I'm hearing this story. I'm not sure how lies actually promote something good, but somehow we all tell them and somehow we all believe them. Isn't that true? We all tell them and we all believe them at some stage of our dealings and comings and goings. And if we're really honest with ourselves, They might not be as blatant as that, but the lies that we tell most are the ones to ourselves. The lies that we end up telling most of are the ones that we tell ourselves. And we can get so good at telling ourselves these lies that we accept them as truth. And it seems strange that we would exchange perfectly good truth for a lie. That does seem a little strange to me. But it's more subtle than we often think. It often doesn't start with a lie. It starts with some truth that's mixed with deceit. The devil is very good at telling lies. I want to tell you, he's really 
quite good at it. And that's exactly what he does. He starts with something that sounds just like the truth and then weaves enough deceit in amongst it, laced enough with something that's going to be acceptable as hearing it, as appearing as truth, but it's really a lie. Romans 1.25 says that as fallen human beings, it says this, we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. We've exchanged the truth for a lie and it causes us to start to worship things that are created instead of the creator. Sometimes it's our own experiences that teach us to lie to ourselves. Ever reduced your theology to what you've experienced? Ever reduced your theology, your understanding of what, who God is through scripture to your own experience? Ever prayed for somebody and they don't get healed? And then all of a sudden you start thinking, maybe God's will won't heal, maybe. Maybe they did something really bad. Maybe God's punishing them. Maybe it was me. Maybe there was lack of faith. Maybe God didn't want to heal this person. Ever gone down that track, that line of thinking? You see, that's a lie. (laughs) That's just a blatant lie. But you see, telling a lie to ourselves makes us often feel a lot more comfortable than facing the reality of the truth. Even if we don't know the answer, Somewhere along the line, we believe the lie as more tolerable, more bearable than the truth. And there are some lies that feel true, even more true than truth does. Shrewdly put together pieces of truth mixed with enough deceit to render them ineffective. Love the Lord your God with, what's that word? All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. I'll love God when it suits me and feels okay to do so because there's some reward or benefit to it and a convenient time with something. And I love God. But that's not what it says. It's a commandment. It's not a great suggestion. It's a commandment. Love the Lord your God with everything you have. Heart, soul, mind, strength, everything at your disposal. Love him with everything. And yet we can easily so fall into a lie that sounds a lot like truth. Why? Because I do love God. I I am in love with God when it suits me (laughs) with as much as I'm willing You see, it's not the truth that you can quote. It's not the truth that you know mentally, but it's the truth that you do that guides you into life's ultimate outcome. I know what I need to do to get fit. I'm just buying bigger shirts. But I know what I need to do. I spent four years at university doing a Bachelor of Human Movement Studies. I was a coach. I'm a trainer. I, I, can, I know it all. At one point, I believe it or not, I was even an athlete. 
I don't need to know more. <laughs> I need to put in practice what I already know. Sometimes we say we need to know what to do before we do it, but if only we would do what we already know. Anyone awake? See, the proof that something is true in your life is not that you can say amen or agree to it, but that you can actually live by it, and you do. Got your Bible handy? Open up to Mark chapter 10. There's this story of this very sincere guy, incredibly sincere, I believe. I, I, I think he's had a bad rap over the years, but I, I think he's actually sincere. But this guy's bought into a pretty big lie. He really has. And it's affecting now how he's going to live out the rest of his life. There's this guy who comes up to Jesus, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell the same story. And you can put all of these stories together to get a really good understanding. This man was wealthy, he's very wealthy, he's also young. And he's also in the position of authority. He's like a ruler. So he came to be known, and you might even have the title in your Bible, depending on how old it is, as the rich young ruler. To begin with, you need to understand that this guy had his life together. I mean, from an internal, external point of view, this guy had everything together. He had the life that everybody else really wanted. Most who came to Jesus would come to Jesus because they had an incredible need. They were beggars, the lame, the blind, the sick, the diseased. They came to Jesus because they had an issue that was going on in their life. They were in need. This bloke, he had his stuff together. So when he comes to Jesus, you start to wonder, what does he want? And you can imagine Jesus just sizing him up a little bit. Ruler means that he's educated. He's got his MBA, he's got his doctorate, whatever. Like other rich young rulers, he, he looks the part. He hops out of his Tesla, he checks his iPhone watch, he Make sure that he doesn't scuff his brand new white St. Laurent's as he gets out onto the footpath. He's a techie turned entrepreneurial founder to a get big fast startup that overnight achieved mythical status. His presence on Instagram and Twitter is just like a big sign that says, follow me. And a lot of people do. You need to know that this guy, I think, is actually genuine. I think he's a good guy. He doesn't just want to be rich. He wants to be good. He wants to help the planet. He wants to do no harm. And so when he hears that Jesus is coming to town, he seeks him out because he has a question. He's been waiting to ask a peer, someone like Jesus. So Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through to 22 to start with. 
As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. And no one is good except for God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud. Honor your mother and father. Teacher, he declared. All these things I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Our rich young ruler runs up to Jesus and falls on his knees. This culturally is an incredible sign of humility. Running up to Jesus, this guy, his position, who he is, his status, all of these things, running up to Jesus and coming and falling at his knees is like saying, wow, Jesus, I really, really respect you. And he addresses him with great respect, not just teacher, rabbi, but good teacher, a person of esteemed character, I'm so honored to meet with you. I won't take too much of your time. If we could just catch up over a coffee, if we could just take enough time, could I buy you lunch? Could we go somewhere nice? I just really want to sit with you and understand something. Got the idea? The idea in his mind that he's already a really good person. He's got his stuff together. He just wants to become an even better person And so he's talking with another recognized expert on the subject he's about to launch his question into. And Jesus answered, no one's good except God alone, right? Jesus is sizing this guy up, right? Jesus is letting this guy know right from the start, hey, this isn't going to be the sort of conversation you think it's going to be. I'll just throw it out there to you now. I'm not going to play this game, Jesus says. Where, where it's a mutual admiration society and you knowing how good you are come to me and say, oh, good teacher. And then I would reflect back to you, oh, good son or whatever, my good follower or whatever it might be. Jesus is like, it's not gonna run that way. He just puts it straight out there to this guy and he says, only God is good. Why do you call me good teacher? He's a pretty cluey guy. A little bit later on, he refers to Jesus again. He just calls him teacher. The next time he's kind of like, okay, I learned that lesson. And Jesus then reminds the rich young ruler that he knows his stuff. There are the 10 commandments that relate to other people. Here they are in random order. Jesus kind of spits them out at him. You know the commandments. Check, you betcha. I've done all this stuff since I was a kid. I got it. But what his real question is, 
is a question that says, I think I want to do better at what I'm already good at. I've got all this stuff together. I'm pretty good at it. But what do I do to inherit inter- eternal life? And, and as Pastor Ryan was mentioning to us last week, eternal life is a pretty hot topic around Jesus' time. And he's not just talking about what do I do when I die. It's not just what happens to me after I die. Is there somewhere that I would spend eternity with God or elsewhere? Uh, what he's really also saying, and you could rephrase the question to be saying something around, you know what, uh, what must I do in life now? How can I start living towards God's plan for my life? And I actually think this young bloke is really quite sincere about it. He's not a hypocrite. I don't think he's actually over the top posing. I think that probably comes naturally to him. He prides himself on his character and his integrity. Maybe he's feeling pretty good right now because Jesus has labeled all of the things that he has already nailed. Maybe he's a little bit disappointed. Maybe he's actually thinking, wow, Jesus, I thought he would come with something else. I mean, every rabbi knows this stuff. Like, this is the normal stuff. I'm a little bit disappointed, maybe. Maybe he is. I don't know. We, I'm reading into the situation here. I don't really know. I wasn't there. That was half funny. <laughs> maybe he wants validation. I don't know. And then you get this most surprising and beautiful verse. There's this loving look. Jesus stops and looks at him with love. I mean, understand who Jesus is. There's a lot of people who know who he is right about now with regards to this teacher who teaches like nobody else. Like he understands stuff like nobody else understands. He teaches with this authority. Uh, he's a signs and wonders and miracles, man. I mean, people are being healed, set free, delivered all over the place. Like Jesus is, he is he's known. This is why this guy, rich young ruler, is here wanting to talk to Jesus, right? And that's, that's, a, that's a good thing, but Jesus... Jesus is poor. Jesus has no home. He has no place in which to lay his head. He's like, a, he's like the first of the not-for-profit. Well, that doesn't quite work, not-for-profit. Let's say, let's say he's an NGO. His backing just comes from a few ladies who are looking after him and his disciples. Maybe they're still living off some of, you know, the money from the fishermen who's coming in, their dad's out there doing all the hard work, and, they, you know, his disciples, they're feeding it back in. I don't know, maybe Judas has got something else going on, probably. <laughs> but being said is, there's not a lot of money, and Jesus, this poor guy, looks at this guy, just stepped out of his Tesla, checks his watch, makes sure his nice shoes are right. Got it all together. Everything. And he looks at him with love. And it's kind of, I don't know, when I was reading through this passage, I'm like, what an amazing phrase right there. But why? Why is that phrase right there? What is going on that Jesus would have to look at him with love? Probably because everyone else is looking with jealousy. Oh, look at that guy. Yep. We know who he is. He got it all. But most importantly, I think Mark tells us this part. Because what Jesus is about to say to the rich young ruler, 
and that he's about to say to you and me, prepare yourselves. He's going to say it out of love. He's going to say what he's about to say out of love. Don't misplace what Jesus is about to say to him and to you and to me. This is a, a love statement. Because these are going to be words and maybe words that we also don't always want to hear. But God's motivation is love. Teacher, I've done all of these things since I was a boy. Yeah, okay, nice going. Thanks for coming. Just one more thing, Jesus says. There's one thing you lack. This guy's not used to hearing that he lacks anything, right? I don't lack anything. I see it, I want it, I get it. That's the way it's been. I don't lack for anything. And Jesus, he's not having a go here that this guy has too much. It's not a problem of something that he has. It's a problem of something that he doesn't have. Jesus puts his finger right on the spot of this wealthy, powerful, prime of his life, young man's problem as a lack of something. Somehow he's impoverished. Something's missing. I reckon this had to intrigue the young man, if you ask me. He has money, he has power, he has youth, and this is going to bring him a boatload of all sorts of other things, yeah? Power, prestige, admiration, honor, education, opportunities. You see how it works. It's still working the same as it did back then. It's still working like that today. What do I lack? And Jesus actually doesn't name what he lacks directly. Instead, Jesus gives him four commands. Go, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Go, sell, give, follow, four commands. A few weeks ago at the beginning of this series, I was talking about what it means to follow Jesus. Can you remember if you were here or caught it back online or whatever you did? Can you remember we talked about how there's these strange moments where Jesus appears to the calling of the first disciples and Peter, James and John and those guys and, and he's walking up to them at their boats when they're fishing and he just says, come follow me. And they drop everything and they do. You can go back and listen to why that's the case, right? We talked about that. Come follow me. Come follow me. That's Jesus' phrase. A different one to most rabbis. Most rabbis, a disciple is asking, can I follow you? Jesus reaches out to others and says, come follow me. Why here is follow me the fourth command? Go sell, give, follow. Well, because you have to get rid of your old master before you can follow your new one. That's why. You have to get rid of your old master before you follow a new one. That's the way having a master works. 
Jesus is pretty good at recognizing the presence of another master other than his father in heaven. He's pretty clued up. Still is. This was the great discrepancy. This rich, young ruler wanted to inherit eternal life. He wanted a plan that would honor and glorify God in how he was living. That's what he wanted to do. And he thought he was nailing it. He wanted to be good. He just wanted to be rich more than he wanted to be good. That's what he really wanted. That's what he's in love with. Jesus puts it another way in Matthew. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will, love, be devoted, you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Just clears it right up at the end of that statement. If we'd have left that part off, oh, we could, we could make that sound like anything, right? This rich young ruler turns around, he walks away. It says the man's face fell. The, the beautiful imagery, tragic imagery. Heartfelt despondency immediately. And everyone saw it. This is what cuts deep. He'll not follow. He'll not go. He'll not give. He'll not sell. It's a tragedy. Somewhere in this young man's life, he has believed and started to believe or tell himself a lie about following Jesus, about following God, about what it means for God to have a plan for your life, an eternal plan for your life. If I keep all of these commands... If I do everything right, then that'll become enough to outweigh those feelings of power and the love of wealth that seems to be the real driver, the real passion point of my life. I can't bear to think if that was taken away. Jesus immediately looks around to his disciples and he says, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at this. Why? Because this guy had his stuff together. He's the example of what it means to be blessed by God. Prosperity doctrine is not something new. It goes way back. Here, this guy's a ruler. He's really wealthy. He's got everything together. That is the sign that God has blessed him. What are you saying that this guy is going to find it real hard to enter into eternal life? What do you mean? And Jesus in one sentence brings the real meaning of what it is to be a disciple, to be a sold out follower of Jesus. Everything. Everything comes at a lower priority than following him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all that is at your disposal. 
You see, the proof that something is true in your life is not that you say amen and agree to it, but that you can live it out. Jesus put it another way. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Love the Lord your God with everything at your disposal. But don't fall for the lie that you can follow Jesus and have two masters. What's the lie we've been believing about Jesus' invitation to follow? What's the lie about everything coming under his lordship that we've bought into? What's the lie you may have been telling yourself about money and God? I don't earn enough to worry about submitting my finances to him. Money isn't my master, I just like what it affords me. Jesus is asking me to give everything away. My time and my talent is enough of what I give over to Jesus. This is not about money. The church always wants your money. And Jesus addressed the stunned disciples. I imagine they look a little bit like you right now. (laughs) Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Historically, even scribes have played with these verses because they're touchy. At one point in time, a scribe, since being redirected, said how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter. But that's not what it says. It just says how hard it is for the rich to enter. Not trust in riches, just the rich. Why? Because Jesus gets it. You can't serve two masters. He knows it. I've heard it said. I can remember, I've read it in commentaries where they talk about the eye of the needle and the, the eye was like a, a camel gate and the camel gate was like the, the, a camel going through the eye of the needle which was a gate called the eye of the needle and camel had to get right down low and on its knees and drop all the stuff off its back. Rubbish. I really don't think so. I really don't think so. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying this is impossible. That's what he's actually saying. We like to change the context of it to try to make it meaningful to us to be able to sit in a pleasure point where we don't have to decide. And he says, that's not the case. You better make a decision. This is like it's impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom. He's deliberately using illustration about this impossibility and the point is it's not that hard. The point is it's impossible. The only way is surrender. God, that's not mine. God, you must do what I cannot. I'll put this on the altar. From this day forward, what does it mean not to regard what's mine as mine? What does it take for you to understand that what is yours is not actually yours? If he's your master, it's his. Surrender. My kids were small. I remember taking one of them to McDonald's. 
and they get that meal that some marketing genius came up with in a fit of brilliance called the McHappy Meal. Just one purchase of some food and a toy can make you happy. I was trying to be healthy, so, you know, I'm, I'm staying on something of the wrap or salad item side of things. And those beautiful golden French fries were staring at me. I thought, I, I'd like to be happy too. <laughs> I, if I, I could just grab one of those, right? That'll make me happy. And as I reached my hand out towards my child's fries, they're mine. Suffice to say. What do you mean they're yours? Who do you think just bought them for you? Whose car did we arrive here in? Whose house are you living under? Who has provided everything for you since the day you came out of your mother's womb? They are not your fries, they're mine as well. <laughs> Suffice to say, we didn't go back for a happy meal in quite a long time. <laughs> somehow, somehow, you and I, we, we've bought into a lie that what we have, what we earn, the treasures that we possess are ours. We learn really on early to say, that's mine. God, keep your hands off it. That's mine. But the truth is nothing's mine. I came into the world with nothing. I'm gonna go out with nothing. I'll hopefully leave something good behind. Now, some of you are saying, oh, I'm so glad this is a story for rich people and I hope they're hearing you, John. <laughs> but that's not me. You know what I want to call that as? Lie. We're all rich. Compare us to anywhere in the world. We're filthy. If you aren't a generous, giving person of your treasures, you bought into that lie. If you aren't giving to God, if you aren't saying, if you're saying, this is mine, then this story is for you as much as it is for the rich. See, most of us are not called by Jesus to give away everything. What we're all called to do is surrender everything. Our lives, our will, our resources, our treasures, our money, and the most tangible expression of surrender is to give. To give. To become a giving person, to give systematically, to be able to, 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 to give joyfully, to give generously, to give willingly. And if you've been fuzzy about your giving, get out of the fuzzy. Get really clear. What do you intend to give to the church as an expression of giving to God? If you don't have a budget and your finances are kind of all undisciplined, all over the place, you can get some help on that. I encourage you to do that. There are plenty of great resources around. God doesn't want you to live in shame, and I know there's so much shame comes in that space of our lives. Get help, get a budget. Make the first financial transaction of every month to God. God is first, and the first is always God's. 
Maybe today's the day you surrender your treasures to God. Maybe it's the day you stop believing the lie. See, in that Romans passage, it says that we've exchanged a lie, a truth for lie, and we start to worship the things that are created instead of the creator. Are you worshiping what's been created, what you have in your pocket or driving or living in or whatever, rather than the creator? Today can be the day if you've never tithed. The Bible talks about a practice of tithing. I, I won't get into the teaching of it now. I believe it's just a, a, an idea. I believe it's the, the benchmark to start with. It's talked about the first 10%. It's not a legalistic thing. But the idea is we give the first 10% of our income directly to God. If you've done, never done that today, could be the day. Why? Because we have a great opportunity. Let me tell you what our opportunity is. Our giving at this church this year is currently at two-thirds of what we've budgeted. Our income is at two-thirds of budget. 66, 67%. If giving remains at two-thirds of the budget, we'll be down $1.2 million by the end of the year. That means things are gonna have to change about what we do in our community, what we do in this community, and who's here doing it. We have a faithful core out of, we have about 6,500 people attached to this church. We wind that right back. We wind it right back. But we have a faithful core of about 400 givers who give 90% of everything we get, all our regular gifts. 400 givers give 90%. The budgeted average giving per regular river lifer that is 18 years older, 18 years or older, is actually less than $1,900 per annum. That's the average gift of people who are regular attenders. I'm not talking about the thousands who are connected. I'm not talking about children under 18. I'm not talking about, I'm just talking about 18 and older. The average gift per year is just under $1,900. Let me put that into a little bit of perspective. That's, if you were tithing, that would mean you'd earning about $365 a week. If you tithed off the unemployment benefit for a 22-year-old single person, you'd be giving $1,400 per annum. If the average income of our church, 1,300 regular attenders, aged between 25 and 65, let's make it working age, 25 to 65, 1,300 people regularly attend this church, that isn't counting community contacts and other people and all that, just regular attendance. You're here one out of four weeks. Say the average income was 50,000 a year and you tithed on that, you gave 10% of that, $5,000 over the year to God through the church, we would have a budget of $6.5 million. That'd be enough to pay down this debt. If you're new to us, we carry about a $10, $11 million debt on this facility. Some very generous people have paid the other $12 million that it costs to build it. But we can easily walk in here and think it's all done. It's, a, it's beautiful. It's comfortable. I thought about turning off the air conditioning halfway through the service. 
Maybe preaching with a candle in the dark. Letting the kids come in. See, this is my point. If everyone surrendered their finances to God, if we all did that, and we all gave systematically, and we all gave generously, there would be no lack to to fulfill the vision God has for this church. No lack at all. This isn't about being rich and giving more. This is about everyone doing their part, because why? We surrender it to God. It's His. It's not mine. It's His. And I know some of you are incredibly generous, and if you're not there yet, you can start today. And I think about this this rich young ruler, and when he got to the end of his life, he missed the invitation to, yeah, sure, he was respectable, he was affluent, he was comfortable. He's probably even admired, but he missed what Jesus was offering. Come follow me. Come follow me. Because you can't serve both. I, I, you have to get rid of one master before you can follow another one. And if you live a life of surrendered generosity to God, you know the blessings of giving better than anybody already. You know what that feels like. You'll receive the joy of helping others. You'll receive the wonder of God being involved in your financial life so that you can give more. You'll, you'll grow less selfish. You'll become more grateful. You'll be freed up to follow Jesus alone, only Jesus. So let's pray. God, thank you so much for your goodness to us. We really do live in extraordinary relative levels of affluence. We pray for those who are struggling financially. We pray for those who, through this recent season, have lost jobs, who don't have jobs or a place to stay or enough money to feed their family and pay the bills, drowning in a sea of debt. God, we pray that we'd come around them as the family, we'd help provide and that, God, you would provide. Even in their meagerness as they put you first, God, that you would, you would bless them. Cause resources to flow into their lives and for them to be able to do and find good work. God, for a whole lot of us, our finances are a matter of how we choose to spend them. And I pray for me and for all of us that we would hear the call, we'd fall to our knees, and we'd seek to follow the one who, though he was rich, became poor for our sakes. We surrender our treasures to you this morning, Jesus. We break off the lies that we have believed about God and money. And we willingly receive the truth that we can trust you and we can demonstrate this by being obedient to you. We ask it in the name of Jesus because we need your help, Jesus, to follow you in these ways. Amen. Thanks for listening to this River Life podcast. Make sure you subscribe to keep up to date with all the latest content. If this podcast has raised any questions for you, contact us via church at riverlifechurch.org.au or through Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening.